This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Every province across the country uh, has a different market and their parents have different and unique needs. Alberta is not the only province that is looking for flexibility when it comes to this long-term strategy and plan. Okay, so that's uh, Children's Services Minister Rebecca Schultz commenting on uh, one agreement with the feds and talks on another. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. And that's what was start off the top in this hour is a conversation around child care, how best to make it affordable, why it's important that we do so. So just to, to unpack this a little bit more here. So the, uh, this is an extension of the previous child care agreement with the federal government. So the Alberta government's going to be committing $45 million, and that's going to go toward helping families earning up to $90,000 a year uh, access more affordable child care. It's going to be some money directed into wage top-ups for those who, who work in early childhood education. But with regard to the money that the feds are putting on the table in their hopes that we get a universal $10 a day child care program, that's what the minister was speaking of. The idea that we need flexibility, either flexibility province to province or flexibility from family to family, arguing that the one size fits all approach might not make sense. So joining us to talk about today's announcement, uh, the future of child care policy in Canada, why it matters, both from a social and an economic point of view. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Lindsay Teds, Associate Professor and Scientific Director of Fiscal and Economic Policy at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. Professor Teds, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me back again. All right, so let me get your initial impressions uh, of this uh, agreement that was reached between Alberta and the feds and how the Alberta government's putting these dollars to use. Yeah, and, 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 and I think the setup that you have is right. This is actually an agreement that dates back to 2017, although I know this government doesn't want to give any credit to the NDP government, but it has been in place since about 2017. It was renewed in 2020, and this is yet just another renewal. Um, you know, if I'm going to read a bit of the tea leaves here, I'm going to actually suggest that this renewal was probably a stopgap measure as we try to get to a full deal on early childhood education and child care with the federal government. This gives everybody a little bit of breathing room because it's been very clear this government has been fighting some of the key terms in the media about this. So with this program, really what we have is um, a program that is primarily focused on the child care subsidy that already exists in Alberta. Um, this new investment is going to allow it to, to shift out a little bit more um, with income. Uh, it previously ended at $75,000 in total of total family income, whereas now it's $90,000. Um, and what that means is people between seventy-five dollars and $90,000 of family income are now going to get a subsidy, whereas before they didn't. But it's no 
more money for um, lower income individuals, that subsidy looks like from everything they have announced is not changing. Yeah, and it cuts to that that part of the debate about how do we make this targeted to those who most need it? Because, you know, one of the consequences of this is that someone earning $89,000 is going to be eligible. Someone earning or a family earning $91,000 wouldn't, even though there's not a real meaningful distinction between those two situations. So mm-hmm. is 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 it the wrong way to, to try to address that side of it, or is it possible to address that side of it? You know, um, I... I I'm- I really want to use the language early childhood education because mm-hmm. that is really what the focus here is, is ensuring high quality, um, evidence-informed education for the kids that are not yet in school. I, I mean, we have this sort of magic idea at age six. Now everybody gets to go and have early childhood education for free, and we all accept that, except for the most important brain development that happens is in the early years. Um, And so it really is about early childhood education, and it is about quality. So we have to remember that. This is about building human capital. Then we also have this fundamental issue of, um, you know, in order to be able to, uh, you know, choose between staying at home and going into the workplace, early childhood education actually forces um, people to make decisions that they wouldn't otherwise make. So we're trying to make sure that this is, um, it, it really is economic policy. It's about supporting parents in their labor market activities, and it's about supporting the creation of our future workforce through human capital development. So, you know, everybody gets too focused in on, oh, if you're high income, you should be able to pay for this yourself. But early childhood education can run, in my case, $100,000 to get a kid to school. This is a significant barrier to being able to um, have economic growth, economic productivity, and happy, healthy parents as well. Right, which you know, I alluded to at the outset that, that there are economic and social arguments at play here, right, in terms of mm-hmm. what children need, uh, but also in terms of what the economy needs. What, what are the economic arguments for early childhood education? Well, I mean, first of all, the, the human capital formation of our future workforce. Um, second of all, to uh, ensure that parents are going to be able to allocate their human capital <laughs> to the least opportunity cost activity. Um, it also actually is a massive employer of skilled women, early childhood educators, are mostly women, and these are people with university degrees. Um, We need to make sure that we focus in on understanding the skills that they bring to this. Unfortunately, the market doesn't value the big skill that they bring, which is caregiving, right? We expect that to be provided for free, or we don't remunerate it through wages. Therefore, wages are too low, and we have supply constraints. So this is a market that's actually filled with market failures, and why we actually need to have um, public investment in it, just like we do K K through 12. Uh, with regard to going to the next step and what the federal government is hoping to see across the country, I played the clip of Alberta's uh, Social Services Minister, Rebecca Schultz, talking about how uh, the needs of families vary, not just within Alberta, but obviously making a case to some extent that, that Alberta is somehow unique from, say, B.C. or Ontario. 
I mean, I'm less convinced on, on that side of things, but yeah, it's true. <laughs> Families' needs do vary, and obviously means do vary as well. But what about this notion that because of that, we got to stay away from a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, right now, we have a no-size-fits-all um, approach, right? Because what we're saying is, is the only way to intervene in this market is to provide some subsidies and maybe some targeted cash transfers, but we're not going to deal with the supply constraints. We're not going to deal with the access constraints. We're not going to deal with the um, quality issues that parents demand. We're just going to let them, you know, go out there uh, and fend for themselves in a market that is failing to provide those necessary quality indicators. So it, it really is to um, understand that, yes, there isn't a one-size-fits-all model, but in order to be able to address the problems in the market, a key cornerstone of addressing these problems is by supporting um, supply, it's by supporting accessible, affordable child care. You know, the rule of thumb is that, you know, everybody understands this about housing, right? It shouldn't be any more than 35% of your income that's spent on housing. Well, the rule of thumb for child care is it shouldn't be any more than 10% of your income. And that's so that you can afford housing and clothing and food and all of those other things. And we are failing dramatically in this province on being able to provide that affordable aspect to early childhood education. So again, this is one part of a prong. In no way is the federal government saying it must be, you know, the NDP $25 a day daycare. No, nobody's actually saying that. And they're also not saying you can't provide cash transfers to parents. Look at BC. BC has a three-part strategy that includes all of these aspects, and they were able to to get a deal with the federal government. So to me, this is just a bit of a mental block and a mental barrier um, that really is is not, in fact, a a truth with what this, this funding from the federal government is about. Right, and it's something you pointed out on, on social media, that there's an important word that gets overlooked in all of this, and that's that's average, that it's not necessarily that provinces are expected to offer straight across the board $10 a day daycare or child care, but it's more about bringing down the average cost of this. Correct, yeah. Everybody's just focusing, oh, now everybody gets has to pay $10 a day. That means low-income people will have to pay more and high-income people will pay less. No, on average, what we're trying to do is get to $10 a day because that's the affordability rule of some that I talked about. But there is going to be variation in there, and there is room with the federal government for variation in there. Um, and it's also, you know, the first stage is a 50% fee reduction, but it's an average 50% fee reduction. It's not that everybody's going to get a, a fee reduction. So, yeah, we really need to focus in on some of the important details here because knee-jerk reactions are not, in fact, helping us come to agreement on good public policy in this province. All right, well, we'll see what comes of this next round of negotiations. We'll leave it there for now. Appreciate the insight. Lindsay Tads, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Lindsay Tetz, Associate Professor and Scientific Director of Fiscal and Economic Policy at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. So that's how she would frame it, that we need to look at this as early childhood education. Uh, we need to look at this not just from the social side of it, but the economic side of it. And no, it doesn't have to be $10 a day, but if we can find a way to bring down the average cost to families, we'll reap those benefits. But again, yes, different families do have different needs. Different families obviously have different means. 
So I think the point about working around that is a valid one. If that means cash transfers as opposed to subsidized childcare, well, yeah, we can have that conversation. So how best to address this? How best to, to spend this money that the federal government's prepared to put on the table uh, when it comes to childcare? Right now, though, an interesting development today, uh, Stuart Bell with Global News and the story today that uh, a Canadian ISIS fighter who remains detained in Syria is now facing charges here at home. Prosecutors have approved charges against a captured Canadian ISIS fighter, according to documents that show how federal officials have dealt with citizens detained in Syria. The approved charges are the first known to have been authorized against a Canadian member of the so-called Islamic State caught in Syria. So this is significant, and it, it gets to the heart of the matter. What do we do with these individuals? Is it possible for us to bring them to justice? Do we have to rely on others to do so? Or do we just hope that whatever these individuals end up doing, wherever they end up going, that they're just going to stay out of trouble? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on the significance of this announcement today and uh, what it might mean going forward with regards to some of these foreign fighters, because I don't know if we have a, an exact number, but there are a number of these Canadians abroad who could potentially face similar charges. Joining us on the line is uh, Dr. Leah West, Assistant Professor and Associate Director of Admissions and Recruitment at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor West, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So how significant is this in, in your view? I... I think it was surprising, and I think it's uh, somewhat significant for a couple different reasons. Um, mostly because it raises further questions for me as to the real reasons why the government of Canada is choosing not to repatriate um, Canadians who are detained abroad and known to have participated with ISIS. Right, so what would the plan be here? I mean, we possibly you know, convict this, this individual in absentia and, and, and just, you know, have that on the record? Or is, is there a plan here, do you think, to, to get him back here at some point? No, I, I think um, any measure of real justice requires the accused participating in their trial. Um, and this could be easily facilitated. The Kurdish um, authorities have routinely said that they will repatriate um, individuals back to their home countries. Um, that doesn't even require a promise to prosecute. Essentially, the, the Kurds want foreigners out of their custody. They've been in their custody since 2018 without any real possibility of facing um, any kind of, of penal consequences in northeastern Syria for a variety of reasons. So the only real way to bring individuals like Ali to justice is to repatriate them to Canada, which could be easily facilitated by the Kurds, and put them on trial here under the criminal code for their crimes. And the criminal code covers um, extraterritorial terrorism offenses. Um, even just traveling abroad to join ISIS is a criminal code offense. Um, so all that would need to be done realistically would be to return Ali and others like him who have confessed to people like myself uh, what they've done abroad and, and put them on trial and actually see them brought to justice for their uh, egregious crimes um, in the name of ISIS. Now, the government has maintained uh, up until now that 
it wasn't feasible to build cases against these individuals, but we weren't able to that, you know, we couldn't gather the evidence necessary. All, all of these excuses we heard along the way. So what, does this represent a, a change in approach here? Is, is this hypocrisy on display? What do you make of it? I think it's a bit of the latter, considering these charges were prepared, we were, we find out in 2018, and for years since then, the government has said routinely that it's difficult to prosecute these cases. And when asked why people were being charged, they were they referred to the intelligence to evidence dilemma, the idea that, you know, the, the information that the Canadian government had as to what these individuals had done overseas couldn't be used to bring charges in a court of law. Well, we know now that clearly that's not the case, at least in the case of Mr. Ali. And in others, like I've mentioned, just the sheer fact of traveling abroad for a terrorist group is an offense. So you don't really need evidence of what they did abroad to prove that offense, right? You can get that information from steps that they took before they left and anybody that they may have talked to since they left about why why they did choose to go to Syria. So I've never really believed that uh, the intelligence evidence dilemma was a full impediment to prosecuting people. Certainly it's going to present, present challenges to prosecuting them for the full extent of any activities that they may have taken part of in Syria. That would be challenging to know precisely what they did in that foreign country in a war zone. Absolutely, I understand that. But... In the cases of Ali, where what he's done and what he committed to do is on social media, where he's spoken to journalists like Stuart Bell about what he's done. In the cases of, an, of uh, Muhammad Khalifa, who spoke to me and Stuart Bell and others in Syria about his role in ISIS media, these are these are not people hiding their crimes. <laughs> um, no. It was very exactly. public. We have lots of evidence of what they've done. Um, and so they can be brought to justice. So this individual, Muhammad Ali is his name, also known as Abu Turab al-Kanadi, as you mentioned, he, he said straight out to Stuart Bell that he was a part of an ISIS sniper team, his social media post, he's been pretty open about calling terror for terrorist attacks, etc. So let me, let me ask you this, do we know his current status? Is, is he alive? Is he still in Kurdish custody? Do we have a, a solid understanding of that? Um, the last thing I think we've known for sure is what um, what we got when Stuart, myself, and Mara Mersingham traveled to Syria in 2019, that he was still in Syrian custody. Um, we really don't know anything more than that. He wasn't one of the two Canadians we had access to while we were there. Um, so we presume that he continues to be in custody. And I, and I think the important thing to remember there is that these individuals are being detained without any charges in real ISIS yeah. member is, mm -hmm. is being detained in conditions. But realistically, it's yeah, sorry, your line's just cutting out a bit there. Me? Hello? Yeah, there we go. Okay, yeah, we were just losing you for a second there, Liam. Um, let me ask you this. So we talked about it before. We had you and Stuart on the line uh, together actually talking about that that trip to, to Syria and, and the conversations you had because you were now finally allowed to speak about it. Um, and, and it speaks to this whole situation as well. If we're prepared to 
build cases against these individuals, press charges against these individuals, does it make sense then that we might send investigators over there uh, to talk to these individuals directly? I I think so. However, as we've talked about before, um, I do think there is an impediment under Canadian law as it stands. And that is uh, because of a decision of the Supreme Court in the Omar Carter case that basically says that it is a violation of anyone's charter rights if Canadian officials participate in a process that is violative of Canada's international obligations. Hmm. And we know that these Canadians are being held in situations that would violate Canada's international obligations. So then to participate in it, take advantage of those situations to interview people while they're being detained would be a violation of their charter rights and would give rise to a remedy. So I think that's part of the hesitancy of of Canadian officials traveling abroad to collect that information that they would otherwise want to collect. Well, and that's been a concern I've heard from people with regard to these individuals, that, that they might make that kind of claim. And let's say the Kurds send Muhammad Ali back here or they hand him over to us and we put him on trial. Can, can he make a similar kind of argument that, well, my rights were violated, I was mistreated by the Kurds, you know, Canada didn't come to, to my rescue, et cetera? D- does it extend that far? Well, I think by doing as little as possible <laughs> and, and really um, trying to maintain that Canada couldn't do anything because of how dangerous it is in Syria, which is something that I would contest uh, based on my own experiences, the government has been trying to shield itself from that kind of claim. Um, and realistically, it's true. The government of Canada has under international law or domestic law to act as individuals. But I think we have a commitment. We've made commitments to the international community and uh, through UN uh, Security Council resolutions to hold Canadians accountable for their actions when they participated with ISIS, and we're not living up to that commitment. We didn't live up to our commitment to prevent them from going abroad and terrorizing the Kurdish people um, and other communities in Syria and Iraq, and we're now not holding our, up to our end of the responsibilities by not holding them accountable for the law for their actions. We're yeah. doing nothing. Um, and I think that that is irresponsible as a state who continues to say that it, you know, it decries terrorism and it abides by the rule of law and this, the concept of international obligations. We'll see where this all goes from here. Dr. West, appreciate your insight as always. Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Uh, that is Leah West, uh, assistant professor at the uh, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Yeah, well, I mean, these are Canadians who, who committed crimes. I, I think that's what we do, isn't it? We hold Canadians accountable. If they were in Canada and attempting to join ISIS for sending money or support uh, to ISIS, it would be a no-brainer, right? We'd send the cops in, we'd arrest them, we'd charge them, we'd put them on trial. It's a different situation, obviously, once someone successfully goes abroad and, and commits these crimes overseas. But this suggests that when there's evidence... And in, in the case of this individual, what he has said publicly, it's, it's pretty damning that we're prepared to build a case, maybe even prosecute a case. All 
All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon. I mean, look, it's, it's been an unusual summer. It's putting aside anything related to the pandemic. Uh, weather-wise, forest fire-wise, it's, it's been unusual. Just the, uh, the heat spells we've had, some of the, the temperature numbers we've put up, you know, here in Alberta, in Western Canada, uh, the extent of the forest fire situation as well. And, and we've had some bad years in recent years. And I can remember a few summers ago, and we had a lot of days where it was just, you know, really, really smoky here as a result of forest fires burning in B.C. But it's been a bad year for forest fires. In fact, you know, lit in B.C., has been a real combination of these two big stories, marking some crazy heat records for all of Canada, not just BC. And then days later, you know, the, the town practically burning to the ground as a result of a devastating forest fire. So is this possibly a glimpse maybe of what might become more normal in the future with climate change? Well, you know, there's a lot of debate around that. But in the here and now, not just the question of is this a preview of what climate change might deliver? Is this something that climate change is already delivering? Well, that I think it's, it's easier to put to the test. So is climate change or to what extent is climate change a factor here? What else are factors when it comes to a bad year for forest fires like we're seeing in B.C.? There's a really fascinating piece from the weekend uh, in the National Post, nationalpost.com, digging into this question. Joining us on the line is the author of that piece, uh, Tristan Hopper with the National Post, nationalpost.com. Tristan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, yeah, you, th- this this question you're exploring isn't could climate change cause more of this in the future, which is you know a little more speculative. This is more about is it a factor right now? Is that fair to say? So, uh, yeah, basically the story is, is uh, so everybody working for us is saying, well, obviously, um, you know, there are incredibly high temperatures. So we just have record-breaking, never-before-seen um, in recorded history temperatures across B.C. Uh, this summer. So obviously hot temperatures and dry temperatures are going to, uh, you know, risk having more forest fires, which we're seeing, and the likelihood of that happening. So, you know, if, if you're speaking to an actual climate scientist, they're usually quite guarded on this. It's like, okay, well, you know, weather is different than climate, but basically if you have uh, hotter global temperatures, it's more likely you're going to have these crazy heat waves. So, you know, nobody's going to say, well, this is directly as a result of climate change. Um, but yeah, I think it's fair to say, that, uh, you know, maybe you, you did have heat waves before you had the effect of climate change, obviously, but uh, it's much more likely that it's going to happen and it's going to be more intense and happen longer. But the reason I was writing this piece is because, yeah, that's happening, but within forestry, these massive fires where you're just sort of blacking out the sky over New York City, um, I think there's a tendency for people not in the know to just say, oh, this is, you know, this climate change. That's what's happening, climate change. And when you speak to people who actually work in BC forestry, uh, they say, well, you know, it doesn't help. We get more fires because of climate change, but uh, forestry management sucks. And that's why we get these massive fires that we really didn't used to get. Even um, So there's been a lot of study over the last few years of what forest and forest fires looked like before the arrival of Europeans. And you didn't really get these massive explosive um, fires on the same level. And basically the reason we're doing that is because we have a policy where um, essentially we never let the fires burn naturally, which they would do in a natural state if humans weren't here. We just put it out. So as a result, you've got a section of forest that under normal conditions would be burning off every 10 to 30 years. And, you know, those wouldn't be tremendously intense fires. 
And instead, we're just having them build up forestry materials, um, just, you know, stuff, forest cover and dead trees and whatever. Um, and then they only catch fire every 75 to 100 years. And when those fires happen, they're just massive and explosive and uncontrollable. And they create plumes of smoke that can be seen on the eastern seaboard. So the consensus among most forestry professionals is, yeah, climate change is a problem. But we absolutely suck at managing forests, and we essentially have a policy of, you know, turning the forest into a giant bomb that goes off every once in a while. Well, it's it's funny because it sounds like a cliche metaphor, but in this case, it's it's literal and it's true. We we need to fight fire with fire. Yeah, yeah. So um, the story gets a lot into uh, pre-contact uh, indigenous burning practices. So I'm speaking here from Victoria. Uh, Victoria, the, the, the only reason it's here, why the BC capital is here, is when the Hudson's Bay Company came up uh, to set up a trading post, they, they thought, oh, this looks nice, um, where Victoria is now, because it had these big open meadows and there weren't very many thick forests. And Europeans just assumed that's what it looked like naturally. It didn't look like that, that naturally. It's because the local Lekwungen people set everything on fire every year and had been doing that for thousands of years. So that's how you create meadows. That's how you create walkable forests. That's how you don't have a lot of um, dead stuff and, you know, various uh, dust and litter on the, the forest floor. So when a fire does happen, uh, there's enough sort of fire break so it doesn't burn out of control. So this was performed all across uh, what is now Canada, essentially. I mean, you had indigenous burning practices in Ontario, all throughout the interior, parts of Alberta. Um, this is just something that evolved. Um, you, you realized, oh, if we just set these things on fire and just do controlled burns every once in a while, Number one, um, it yields a bunch of things you can eat. Uh, like around here, you would do it because it um, promotes the growth of camas, which you could eat. Um, and, you know, chases animals away and then you go hunt them and eat them. There's a, there's a number of reasons why humans would want would be wanting to light the fires uh, every year. And then one of the consequences was that when you're regularly clearing the forest, uh, they don't, when they do catch fire, it's not these massive, uncontrollable, insane fires um, like we're seeing now. So it's essentially the... Um, yeah, a lot of people really hate Smokey the Bear um, because they say he, he started this whole idea of, you know, if a forest is on fire, that's a bad thing. You have to put out all forests on fire. And as a result, throughout much of the 20th century, uh, we were essentially letting these forests pile up with all manner of things that when a fire does come, it's way more intense than it would be otherwise. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You spoke with one expert for the piece who says that, that really, at least in, in the B.C. context, and maybe other provinces are guilty of it, too, but we're really do, only doing about a fraction uh, of the kind of controlled burns that we need to be doing. Yeah, there's actually there was an interesting study that came out. Uh, this is out of California. So California, similar situation. These massive fire seasons keep getting every year and everybody's saying, oh, it's climate change. It's the new normal. It's apocalyptic. We're all screwed. And then there, ha there have been uh, pre-contact studies of California. So before the arrival of European settlers, and they say, well, actually, a normal year in California used to have uh, more than this. So I think it was 1.6 million hectares burned, some, some very large amount, uh, last year or the year before. And then they were saying pre-contact, normally, in a normal year, you would have 1.8 million hectares of California burned. Um, so what you had was more fire, uh, but the fires weren't as insane. Um, so there was a the study just came out. This was this month, uh, and this looked at a test forest. So there's a, a patchable growth forest outside Williams Lake, BC, 
and they were just you could look at tree rings and you can figure out where uh, where when fires had happened and how intense the fires had been. And what they determined was that um, when indigenous people were in charge of forest management, um, it was every 10 to 30 years uh, the forest would be catching fire, but it was just sort of a mild intensity fire. It just sort of burns through. Um, and then with the onset, uh, starting the late 19th century, uh, you have policies to outlaw indigenous burning practices. Um, starting then, uh, you, you, think you have fires only happening every 75 to 100 years. So... You know, a place that under normal conditions would be burning every 10 years, now it's burning every 75 years. So just imagine all the extra stuff there is to catch fire. I think this is important because the narrative seems to be, look, you know, I mean, we're, we're doomed unless we can stop the climate from changing. That if it does, this is going to happen and we're powerless to stop it. Um, look, the extent to which we can stop climate change is obviously debatable, but I think it's important to note that uh, even if we're going to get climate change or some climate change, that these practices matter, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this does frustrate me because there are a number of ecological issues which are pretty solvable. Like, we can kind of figure them out. And people just blame it on climate change, and they just think our hands are tied. Um, so, like, this is, this is sort of peripheral, but this is an Alberta example. My grandma's from Alberta. She grew up during the Dust Bowl. And she's like, if the Dust Bowl happened today, it would just be blamed on climate change. But the reason for the Dust Bowl was just poor, very similar to forestry, it was poor land management. Uh, you were plowing under prairie grasses and then, you know, planting uh, crops with very small root bases, and then you let the land go fallow, and then you just loosened up a bunch of soil, and it was quite a problem. Um, so I do feel if that happened, and people forget, in the 1930s, very similar, you had dust clouds hitting New York City, hitting the eastern seaboard, just like the uh, the wildfire smoke is now. Um I feel if that happened now, we would just say, oh, it's climate change. What are you going to do about it? Rather than this is a mistake we made and we can very easily fix this and ensure this never happens again. Yeah, absolutely. Much more as mentioned, nationalpost.com. Tristan Hopper, I always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you. There you go. Tristan Hopper reported with the National Post, nationalpost.com. So really interesting piece from him uh, from over the weekend and, and why you can't just blame climate change for B.C. being on fire. As he notes in his piece, there are, there are factors here that are relevant, or maybe will be relevant in the years ahead. Warmer temperatures can contribute to drying. Right? I mean, still, I mean, dry is dry, I, I guess, right? Whether it's 25 or 35 degrees outside. But yeah, warming temperatures can contribute to that. Uh, the climate change uh, can also perhaps contribute to the severity of thunderstorms, as he notes in his piece. So if you get more lightning strikes, you may be going to get more fires. The other factor, too, is if you get warmer or milder winters, you have a bigger problem with a mountain pine beetle, and that can make those dead trees that much more flammable. So there are factors that climate change potentially can present. You know, the extent to which, look, I mean, if, if somehow, you know, we'd stop climate change dead in its tracks, would we still be having all of this? Probably. And I think it's also important to note, as he says, what kind of forestry practices can help mitigate all of this? Because that matters to whatever extent climate change is going to contribute to the problem. It's not the only contributing factor. It's interesting, as uh, Tristan points out in his piece, just last week, the case for prescribed burns was bolstered when wire fires surged into Sycan Marsh per Preserve in Oregon, where ecologists have spent years using low-level fires to bolster stands of Ponderosa. One of the researchers at the preserve told NPR that, quote, generally speaking, what firefighters were reporting on the ground is that when fire came into those areas that had been thinned, it had significantly less impact. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.